Welcome back to the Dealmakers Podcast Show with serial entrepreneur Alejandro Cremades, best-selling author of The Art of Startup Fundraising and co-founder at Panthera Advisors. In this podcast, we ask our guests about their successful acquisitions and financing rounds. Hey guys, so just a quick overview here on Panthera Advisors as I think it might be of value to you. So Panthera Advisors exist in order to help founders that are in the process of raising capital or get their company acquired. I actually started the company out of incredible frustration because during my entrepreneurial journey, which involved building, financing, scaling, and exiting companies, I could not find a resource that was founder friendly and I could not get the type of support that I was seeking. So as a result, I made a ton of mistakes along the way. So if you're looking to raise capital or you are looking to get your company acquired or just need some sound financial planning and you're looking to get the best possible outcome in the shortest period of time, feel free to learn more by visiting us at PantheraAdvisors.com or just reach out directly and shoot me a note at Alejandro at PantheraAdvisors.com. Alrighty, hello everyone and welcome to the Dealmaker Show. So today we have a super exciting founder. We have a founder from Israel. And I think that we're gonna be learning a lot, you know, building, scaling, you name it. Uh, and especially as you know, Startup Nation. You know, it doesn't get better than speaking with founders from Israel. So I guess without further ado, let's welcome our guest today, Dor Abu Hasira. Welcome to the show. Thanks a lot, Alejandro. Uh, great to be here. So born and raised there in Israel uh, and growing up in a kibbutz. So, so how was life growing up? Uh, great, actually. Uh, I think, you know, today I'm a father. We are, you know, we are so concerned about what happened to a kid in each stage. Each year is so critical. When I was growing up, I think about it uh, uh, in a kibbutz. It was a system where uh, uh, when you were a kid, again, zero to six, uh, your parents would let you sleep in, not in the, not in the house. Like, in one place, we have one person guarding all the kids, which to today sounds crazy, but I remember it as a great experience. Uh, so uh, just to all the parents out there, uh, don't be so uh, hard on yourself. Whatever you do, it can go okay afterwards. So how, how was that the, because, you know, probably the people that are listening, they're not that familiar with, with the whole concept of kibbutz. I mean, it's like... A, Communism in in a, inside of a community. I mean, how 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 is that? So, can you like explain to us what what that is exactly, and 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 you know how that was for you as an experience? Yeah. So, uh, uh, look, generally in Israel uh, was founded in uh, 1948. There were uh, uh, groups of people uh, settling different parts of of Israel, and when they were building their communities, they chose to to do it in, a, uh, in an equal way, meaning a community where everybody work and they share whatever they make and they share uh, the load of work. And that include also uh, taking care of the kids and, and, and doing whatever a community had to do. Originally, when there was uh, uh, nothing in Israel and, and everything was harsh, and it was actually very effective. But you know, as, uh, 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 the rest of the country was, was not uh, uh, sharing everything. It was uh, 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 more capitalist, more Western, uh, uh, environment, and I think over time, uh, uh, people saw that it's uh, uh, getting better outside the kibbutz and inside the kibbutz. There were not enough incentive for people to <laughs> to do the hard work. And originally, most of the kibbutz didn't survive. Uh, but as a kid, it's, it's a great environment. Uh, uh, you are very close to your uh, uh, 
kind of age group. Uh, there's a lot of outdoors. Uh, uh, so I remember it, remember it as a great experience. And uh, overall, I think I had a great childhood in Israel. So then let's talk about the uh, computers, because you were exposed to computers early on no? and to the whole world of innovation and technology. So how was that a first uh, exposure or, or that love at first sight that you started to develop for this you know, tech environment? So I think that for me, it, it wasn't more exposed than anybody else. You know, I had a computer because my dad got me one and I always liked them. Uh, uh, I like to program them. I play all, you know, the old games that people were born in the 80s and playing games in the 90s. No, in school, I, I was doing computer classes and, and kind of uh, doing my, my work around computers. But unlike many Israelis who are uh, uh, building companies after dealing um, with computers and, uh, and building products, actually, in the Army intelligence units, uh, for me, uh, uh, I, I did uh, uh, my Army service, which is a monetary in Israel, uh, in infantry, not related to, uh, to tech, and went back to tech in university. So uh, for me, uh, I went into tech actually much later uh, than most people do uh, when founding a company, you know, when they're 22 was uh, when graduating about 28 in Israel after doing uh, army service and a very long trip around the world, around South America, about a year. Uh, so it's, it wasn't that I, I got into tech very early, uh, if anything, very late compared to some interpreters. But I mean, pretty much at the same, at the same as uh, in the same situation as other people there in Israel, because everyone needs to do the army. And in, and in your case, you did infantry, so not the a special, you know, unit for uh, technology and whatever. So, so I guess for you, I mean, how was that, you know, journey of going through the army and perhaps, you know, some of the good stuff that you got out of it and, and anything that you can share with us? For me, the army is a big part of building my character and uh, uh, kind of a put me in a situation where I will be happy, will we have to count myself to solve problems, to... Uh, uh, lead people in, in, in difficult situations to uh, uh, prove to myself uh, that I am able to, uh, to lead and I'm able to, uh, um, kind of to solve hard challenges. So for me, it was building character more than anything else. And I think for entrepreneurs in general, that's probably the most important thing uh, that you can ask for. Uh, I, again, I was always uh, uh, frustrated that, uh, uh, you know, uh, people who are building technology products in the army, when they finish the army, <laughs> they are ready to go. For me, there was another process uh, going to university and, 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 and working in, in tech companies for a while before I felt I was ready to, to build my own product and, and, and do my own thing. Uh, but I'm not regretting uh, uh, neither of you know, those steps <laughs> along the way. Absolutely. So then, so then when you finish the army, you decide that it's time to pick up the studies and do electrical engineering. Why, out of all things, electrical engineering? So uh, uh, it's actually a good question because I think I knew that I want to study basically engineering, and I knew I wanted to be in the highest level that there is. And over the 90s in Israel, uh, semiconductor was very big. Uh, electrical engineering was kind of owning semiconductor, and it was they are the strongest departments in the universities. So when I ask people who are older than me, What's the best kind of engineering that I can go to? They said, well, go to electrical engineering and, and you can go to a different, easier one if you want to. 
that, that's what led me to electron engineering. Uh, uh, I really loved it. I loved understanding the bits and, and the lower level of how, uh, uh, you know, uh, products work. Uh, but uh, uh, as I think in many cases, it was more random than and I loved transistors. And, and I think that today it's actually changing. Uh, today, if you are thinking about where most of the focus is probably more software engineering, uh, and I was you know, in the transition between those uh, trends. So also there's an interesting transition that happened in your career because rather than you know, doing the, the whole you know, movement of startup nation there in Israel, you decide and, and do corporate. So, so tell us about that journey from corporate to, to startups. Well, I think that for me, it's not that I really knew I was going to build a company uh, as soon as I started. I, I know I want to be involved with something like that, but I, di I didn't know if I'm going to build it because I didn't know how, how it's done. So when I graduated, for me, the logical next step was to go to work somewhere and, and see what I can do. And, and I think that's an important step. Uh, if you go to work for a corporate, especially for a good R&D team, then, then you get proficient very fast in 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 how you really build products. That is not what you really do when, when you are in the university. And uh, in my story, that was a very good next step to kind of build for myself the understanding of how uh, R&D and high tech in general works and, and what I can, you know, what is my worth uh, uh, in building products. For me, it was very important. Uh, uh, some people can do without. Uh, uh, I don't think there's one lane you have to go through. Uh, but for me, I think when I was working in a corporate, I learned two things. First, you know, I can build product. And second, I don't want to work <laughs> in a corporate <laughs> for the rest of my life. Uh, uh, and and did that transition, working in the corporate, kind of knowing more startups, more people building products, thinking about this stuff with my friends and, and kind of realizing what we can do as we end up doing, building a perception. And obviously, 2013 was... Um was a really interesting year. That was the, the definitely the segue and, and the moment where you uh, perhaps stumble across drones. So how was that moment? I have a very good friend, uh, Raviv Raz. Uh, he's a childhood friend, and we used to build stuff together uh, in our garage next to our house. And one thing that we used to build in 2013 was drones. It was very easy, you know, uh, go online. And over a weekend, we could build a product that we realized could do a lot of uh, pretty amazing things. Uh, you can send a drone a mile away, get an image from a mile away, get it back, uh, all this autonomously after a weekend work uh, uh, in 2013. So, you know, uh, Raviv Raz, my, my co-founder and, and, and friend, he was working in Israeli aerospace industries at the time. It's the uh, largest drone manufacturer in Israel. And he thought that at his work, this was considered a very, you know, high-end capability. And we could build this over a weekend. And that's, we kind of figure out we can maybe do something around drones. Got it. So then, so then when you have this perhaps exposure to figuring out that there is something that you can do around it, I mean, what, what are the next steps or, or what happens in that journey from like really being exposed to something that you're excited about to really deciding that you want to dedicate your life to it? So, uh, I think it's 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 steps, you know. Uh, you, you're thinking that maybe this can work, and uh, it started as uh, like let's test the waters, start to speak with people. Uh, we were the uh, um, 
at first two, but pretty fa fast we added Sagib Blunder, uh, who was, uh, I, I was doing my master in computer vision in Tel Aviv University at a time with him. And I added him because in Israel, we always feel that if you have the best technology and product and everything else is solved. Uh, we learned it's not the case over the years, but when we founded the company, we added Sagi and we had a, a, a core a technical team. And we started working around Tel Aviv with a drone. So many VCs, I think, would just meet us because it was cool. Uh, if you get a meeting with us, you're going to see a drone, you're going to fly, you're going to do computer vision. It's going to be like a celebration. No one really wrote a check, <laughs> I must say. <laughs> okay. But, but uh, uh, everybody wanted to listen. And you, know, you, you kind of get, get the feeling that what I'm doing is interesting. That there is interest. And I have to figure that out. Uh, uh, and for us, the way to do that was uh, one of the accelerators uh, in Israel. Uh, we joined an accelerator called Elevator Fund. Uh, uh, and I think that uh, helped us a lot. You know, uh, small dollars make a big difference when you have zero. Like from zero to 100, it's like a, a huge difference uh, yeah. uh, for an uh, early stage company. And, uh, uh, and also have some people to kind of digest the ideas and, and kind of realize where we're taking this. So we end up uh, really having uh, a direction. Uh, we end up pivoting that direction, but, but we, we were able to later raise our first seed round with, with that, uh, that process. So what was the before and after of joining this accelerator? Because probably there's going to be a lot of people now that are listening to us and, and they're thinking about whether or not it makes sense for them to do an accelerator or an incubator program. So, so what was the before and after for, for your business? So, uh, um, first of all, if they are thinking about it, I don't think I have the answer for them like that. But, but I do think that should definitely, uh, uh, if they are feeling that they are clueless and they don't know really kind of how to proceed, that's a great way to, to move forward. And I would definitely advise to do that because uh, for us, we were uh, three technical guys trying to build a company. And we were not, not experienced in fundraising, not in, in kind of business development. So we, you know, when you don't know what to do, you end up doing what, what you know to do. So we were building the product all the time. And, and, and that was not the best use of our time uh, when we founded the company. And uh, 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 for us, you know, being in that accelerator kind of got us to the right uh, uh, group of people, the network, and, and really push us to uh, kind of defend our idea with different discussions. And, and for, you know, three tech guys who, are doing that for the first time, that was a great push. So uh, uh, if you're considering it, uh, uh, I would say that, you know, uh, um, yes, you should understand what your value is, but if, you're, if you don't know what you're doing and you're doing it for the first time, then I think, take a leap. Uh, 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 do whatever you can to get as kind of more people involved and good people involved. And even though if you, it takes some kind of equity or something small, uh, it's not, an issue in the long run. You know, there's something really interesting here, and, and I don't think a lot of people really touch on it. And, and when you're building a business, you know, especially in, in your guys' case, I mean, you, you and your co-founders, very technical. I find that the shift from technical to business is challenging. So, so how, why was it so challenging, or why was it challenging for you? And then how were you able to address that to really you know, create a proper business, not just a product? It's extremely challenging. Uh, uh, and, and I can say as Israeli, you know, even when you're doing it so far from your market, okay, 
it's even more challenging. Uh, and for us, it was uh, uh, it was so challenging because we really were building a new kind of a I can't say a new market, but yes, it, it was a new market. There was no market for drone drone services. It was all just kind of in the beginning, and and we were you know far away in Israel. And what we end up doing is adding a fourth co-founder because uh, uh, after we spent the first year uh, uh, building a product, it was basically uh, kind of a computer vision add-on for drones, trying to sell that drones company to help them make drones more autonomous. And uh, uh, we thought that the market felt so hyped. If you read about the market only online, you feel like it's a huge market. If you go and meet the clients and meet the companies, you're going to realize it's hype and you're going to realize that you're really selling to a handful of companies uh, that are, are not selling that many drones. So for us, uh, uh, kind of the big step forward as a company was realizing that we are missing that key uh, uh, capability and that none of the founding team was it. And we ended up after a year adding a fourth co-founder, uh, Ariel Vitan, who is the fourth co-founder, he was uh, uh, joining as kind of chief commercial officer. He was doing that route with a different company, going from few employees to 120, left the company after they did the B round with Sequoia and joined three guys, you know, in, in a basement in Tel Aviv. So uh, uh, he joined as a co-founder. And, and I think that was kind of a, a pivotal stage of the company because then we were also realizing that we don't have really a product yet. Uh, for a market and change the company to a, an end-to-end -end solution that ended up building the company forward. So for us, nice. I think my greatest achievement was to understand I don't have that capability and have that uh, coming into the company. That's interesting because the, typically you don't know what you don't know, right? So uh, what, what was that point where, where you realized we, we need some help here? So, uh, uh, well, first of all, I, I think it's... Uh, me personally, I, I usually, I know what I don't know. And I know that if there, this doesn't make sense, I need some help. Uh, I think that actually the accelerator we were in helped with that. Uh, they said, look, you're great. Uh, you, it's amazing what you're building, but we don't understand what you're saying. And, and we need to get <laughs> somebody helping you uh, uh, refine that. And they actually made a connection to, to that uh, fourth co-founder. So uh, um, I think the key, the key point for me you have to know how to get help, but you can't get help from anybody. Uh, before adding that co-founder, I met two others. Uh, the, 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 I think the same accelerator introduced them to me as an option to be co-founders. Right. And with both of them, after five minutes, I knew I don't want to continue. And with the, the guy who ended up being my co-founder, after five minutes, I was, you know, pitching. <laughs> I, I knew that that's the guy. <laughs> right. Uh, 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 so I think what uh, many people are are not allowing themselves to get help, and it's a key kind of quality to to keep building uh, uh, as you're building the company, uh, uh, and definitely get help in the areas where you're weak, because you're definitely weak in some areas if you are two absolutely. guys in the company. Yeah. No. Absolutely. So so then, what ended up being the business model of Percepto, so that the people listening understand it? Basically, uh, uh, like I said, we originally tried to sell technology for drones. And, uh, and we did, didn't have that many drone companies, definitely not that many big drone companies at the time. Our only customer were defense. So we, we actually had some 
traction in defense, but it, it was not a good market. And I can talk a bit more about it, but it's, it was not a good market. So we realized that industrial companies uh, uh, are very excited about autonomous drones, that they have a huge impact on their industry. But industrial companies are at a stage that they are figuring out what exactly are they going to do with drones? How will the solution look? Who is going to do the service? Who is going to get the, you know, the data? Where is it going to go? They were not ready to buy the technology piece that makes the end drones autonomous. They have to figure out so much stuff in the way. So we decided that we're just going to sell them an end-to-end -end solution that its uniqueness was the autonomous drones. Okay, we had an autonomous drone in a drone in a box. The, the key part of it was that you didn't need an operator to operate. So you just have a box somewhere in the world, and from a cloud interface, you could you know, get data and, and, and send that drone to routine missions of uh, security, inspection, monitoring, whatever that may be. And when we were uh, making sense in terms of this is our offering, so finally clients were able to say, yeah, okay, we want that, and that's what we need a drone to do, and we could start iterating and building the business. Very nice. So how much capital have you guys raised to date? Door. Uh, 73 million. 73 Our last million. round is 45. Uh, so 45 is uh, roughly uh, pretty fresh. Uh, but yeah, 73 today. Got it. Uh, and, and I know that you haven't had the metrics all the time to be able to, to have that leverage no? on, on, on financing rounds and get stuff happening right away. So, so what have you learned from, you know, especially during fundraising, capital raising efforts where the metrics are not where maybe you would like them to be? I, I, definitely a good question. I think nobody has metrics. <laughs> I think you hear what you, your metrics should be. But right. if somebody has the metrics, then he's probably raising, like jumping around and doing the, the next round in, in, in too high of a valuation. Yeah. Uh, uh, so I, I think that, that is really, maybe until our last round, when we were you know, in a much more mature commercial stage. And, and that's, again, it's a $45 million round, the B round. Uh, our A round, again, with USVP, a very a good uh, uh, Silicon Valley-based uh, uh, VC, uh, was a $14.5 million. So not a small A round, right? Uh, and before that, we had two seeds, uh, six and a five. Uh, uh, so we ended up raising a lot of money before we had the metrics. And I'll do, I'll do the metrics because I, I think it's something that people uh, uh, say, but many, many investments are not based on that, those metrics. Uh, especially early stage. So uh, uh, one of the things that we have uh, to figure out is, you know, how do we prove or, or, or explain first to ourselves and then to, to investors why this makes sense, right? And uh, uh, I think for us, uh, uh, we end up understanding that we're going to sell to energy, oil and gas and mining companies. On one hand, you have a company that's, you know, many of their facilities generate 100 millions or billion per facility, and you can, you can uh, uh, provide a lot of value per facility for reducing downtime, even a day is, is huge ROI. Uh, on the other hand, it's not the fastest company, right? It's not selling to Google or to even Oracle for that regard. So it, it's, it's, a, a, it's a different sell process and not many kind of benchmark of Unicorn selling to these industries software uh, uh, as you have in other industries like IT and fintech and and uh, cyber. So we had to understand how will scale look like, 
how is this becoming, you know, a billion dollar business and, and more? And and we have to show that 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 trajectory is happening. And I think my best analogy is if you think about companies uh, uh, selling to the automotive, okay? In the automotive, people understand that, yes, it's not, it's off metric. You look at all the SPACs in this uh, area, it, it's off metrics completely, even in the public market today. But uh, uh, it's, there are very good examples uh, of companies that got in and when they became part of the car, they, they were doing a lot of money and becoming very profitable. Uh, uh, and, and I think that what helped them, again, do an IPO outside of metrics. For us, we, we also realized the same uh, kind of trajectory uh, uh, in, in very kind of heavy industry uh, um, procurement processes and how, how they are building their uh, technology uh, future. Uh, you have to understand long sell cycles. You have to understand that the company that is buying one system for you is basically doing a POC, even if they already bought the system. Because uh, uh, um, if you have a, a company like uh, uh, Florida Power Light or, or uh, Enel or, or the companies that we work with, if you are deployed in, in a coal-based power plant, they have, again, many others, and uh, they are trying to see if they have a better way to do something, and then they're gonna want to deploy big. And uh, 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 the hard part is to get to that point uh, because it may take them, you know, two quarters. It may take them a year or two if it's an autonomous drone that really has some risk associated to it to make the decision that this is working well enough for them to now more heavily deploy. But I think one of the good things with them is that they're going to explain it to you if you are willing to listen uh, uh, as you go and that their ultimate goal is to really uh, heavily deploy you in a very strong way. I heard uh, a lecture by, uh, I think, uh, ExxonMobil CTO, and uh, uh, she said that her problem with startups is usually when they are ready to deploy, the startup is not ready to scale in terms of, kind of manufacturing and deployment capabilities. Yeah. Because when they are deploying, deploying, it's very big. When we did these, those, those rounds, we didn't have, you know, that trajectory that people knew from IT and FinTech and all the X3, X3, X2 that you would like to see. But we had uh, uh, tens of multi-billion dollar companies already have, you know, their toes in, already have POC or one deployment and already uh, 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 articulating how the next steps would look like over, over a few years. So, of course, there was risk, you know, thinking about uh, uh, 2019 when we did our A round. Uh, uh, of course, there was risk, you know, around uh, their trajectory to doing that. Uh, but ultimately, I think there was also a huge opportunity with, uh, 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 again, so many of those major clients indicating uh, this is super interesting for us. This is our future. And yes, it may take us a year or two, but we're going to get there. And, and now a few of them, only a few of them are there. It's, it's, it's growing very significantly. So a 200K in 2019 is now a 2 million account and, and and the ones that are doing that are very are very lucrative absolutely so then let me ask you this what's in store for percepto let's say if you were to go to bed tonight and you wake up five years later you haven't slept like this in your whole life right and you wake up in a world where the vision of percepto is fully realized what does that world look like the news is 
autonomous inspection and monitoring, meaning you're going to have a lot of autonomous robots being used for inspection and monitoring uh, uh, across the world, uh, industrial facilities and infrastructure. I'll give you one great example that I have uh, uh, for our power grid. Okay. Uh, I was living in California until a few months ago. I was in California. Uh, I don't know if you know, but PG&E, uh, uh, California's biggest utility, was bankrupt. Basically, two years ago, they admitted that they were uh, uh, a fault in the fires that uh, took the life of 85 people due to faulty equipment. Now, uh, uh, when you think about it, PG&E is a great company, and I'm sure they did the best practices in this market, right? Basically, it means that they inspect their power grid uh, once a year. Someone sometime this year will inspect that area of the power grid. But that the best practices in this market, it's like this all across the US and Israel, everywhere. So it's uh, the industry was built this way because there was not really other economical choice. You can't have somebody every day doing that. Electricity will, will cost too much. Uh, now we are working with uh, Florida Power Light. I think it's, it's public already uh, uh, in the East Coast about a solution where we're going to inspect the power grid uh, uh, with autonomous drones at roughly the same cost, basically once a week or once a day, depends on, on the cu customer uh, need, because the uh, inspection part will be completely automated. And then not only you're going to do it more frequently, you're actually going to uh, doing it uh, uh, in a much more repetitive way, same time every way, and you get, you're going to be in a much better position to have AI tools to kind of indicate where there are anomalies, where do I change, where do I see a problem happening, and started being more effective in how you manage your professionals and, and maintenance uh, operators when you solve it. And what you it's important to understand about Percepto is that our uh, a key understanding about our market is that we have to provide an end-to-end -end solution for our clients to be able to do, the, to do that. So if Percepto, four years ago, when I started, was autonomous drones company, uh, uh, two years ago, we decided we also got to build the entire software stack of how you manage this data, how you manage these robots, and how you end up using this data to do analytics and AI to ultimately what we sell to our customers is the report that indicate what they have to do about their, again, network in that uh, case can be a pipeline or uh, other uh, assets in other examples. So uh, uh, for you personally, it's going to mean a, a world where, uh, uh, you know, basic infrastructure like gas, electricity, uh, and other kind of uh, uh, products uh, will be safer, uh, cheaper. Uh, and uh, for the companies managing that, they're going to be, again, having a, a more efficient, uh, less downtime, uh, better response. And, and again, ultimately, I don't know if I said it again, safer, because <laughs> in most of those industries, uh, people are dying every year, and we are taking a lot of those dangerous work they're doing uh, uh, and automating that as well. So so let's say, you know, there's, there's a question that I typically ask the guests that come on the show, and, and that is, let's say I put you into this time machine and we're able to bring you back in time. And you have the opportunity of speaking with that younger door, with your younger self. And essentially, you have that chance of giving yourself one piece of business advice before launching your business. What would that be and why, given what you know now? Uh, so for me personally, it's just a mistake I feel I made. I would. Uh, uh, um... I would 
urge myself to focus on uh, uh, kind of the, the market and the business earlier because I was very focused on the tech and I'm, I'm, I'm still in love with the products and the tech. I, I must admit, I, I love what we do. But I think as you build a company, you got to focus on, on the biggest uncertainty for your business and you have to focus on how you're building your business. So for me, I needed to do it uh, a bit earlier. Um, what's the best advice before finding Percepto? Uh, I would say, I, I don't know. Why are you, what are you waiting for? <laughs> <laughs> I love it. Very profound. So, so for the folks that are listening, what is the best way for them to reach out and say hi? So for me personally, uh, uh, I guess LinkedIn is an option. though It's, it's a bit uh, uh, crowded, but I, I end up getting there. Better than Facebook because I'm much slower there, but probably LinkedIn is uh, uh, is okay. I'm, I'm apologizing. It takes me like a week or two to get, get it back, <laughs> but I will do that eventually. Uh, I must say that anybody who is kind of frustrated about uh, um, he's have a hardware component in his business, uh, he's got long sales cycle and commercial uh, uh, markets, uh, uh, those are things that I spend a lot of time solving problems around, and maybe I can, uh, uh, I can help. Uh, uh, thinking about some topic. Uh, I do think it's one of the hardest things that you, you guys can do if you are entrepreneurs and that uh, uh, we should help each other. And if there are people who are not entrepreneurs or just kind of uh, corporates, then uh, uh, I think it's help everybody if we help <laughs> these uh, entities, startups exist. So I'm, I'm happy to help and I, I hope uh, people will do the same. Amazing. Well, Dor, thank you so much for being on the Dealmaker Show today. Thanks a lot for having me. I had a great time. If you like the show, make sure that you hit that subscribe button. If you could leave a review as well, that would be fantastic. And if you got any value, either from this episode or from the show itself, share it with a friend. Perhaps they also appreciate it. So also remember that if you need any help, whether it is with your fundraising efforts or with selling your business, you can reach me at alejandro at pantheraadvisors.com. You've reached the end of another episode of the Dealmakers podcast. For free resources and materials, head over to alejandrocremades.com. Thank you for listening and see you at the next episode.